Welcome to The Spin Cycle. I'm Maggie Sarachek. And I'm Abby Greenberg. And together we are the Anxiety Sisters. Anxiety Sisters, and welcome to our last show of season two. Can you believe it's the end? No. Oh my gosh. Well, just of season two. Only of season Oh no, and we have really cool plans for season three. We We're do. very excited about we that. We do. Uh, anyway, today is going to be a really fun episode for us because we get to answer your questions, mm -hmm. which also fulfills Mag's lifelong dream of being an advice columnist. Exactly. That's all she wants is a radio show. <laughs> or just a newspaper, if there's still newspapers around in a few years. Right. I just want a newspaper. You want a dear Maggie? Like, yes, exactly. <laughs> totally happy. So thank you so much to everyone who submitted questions. There were literally hundreds of great topics to choose from. It was really hard to pick just eight, but we did. And here we go. So our first question is from an email from Lindsay, who asked us, can anxiety cause excessive sweating? What a smart question. That's what do a good you question. Of course. Yes. Of course, of course. In fact, we always say that anything your body can do, any sensation, any sound, any fluid it can generate, can be an anxiety symptom. Mm -hmm. And if you think about it, since sweating is a bodily response to rising temperatures and anxiety causes your body temperature to rise as we prepare for the fight or flight, it would make sense that sweating would occur as the body begins to feel overheated. Yeah. What I always think about is... What kind of symptoms would I have if I was running away from some sort of very big... Uh, saber-toothed tiger. Yes, yeah, saber-toothed tiger. That's a good <laughs> word. So, uh, from, from a saber-toothed tiger. You know, so my heart would be going fast. You'd be uh, hot. I'd be hot. I'd be sweaty. Exactly. And it seems hard because maybe you're just sitting on your couch and all of a sudden you're sweating or standing in the grocery store and all of a sudden you're sweating. But really, your brain believes that you're running away from a saber-toothed tiger. Yes, that fight-or-flight response has mm -hmm. been around since the beginning of mankind, and it is very protective. I mean, it was a, it was really important oh my gosh. that our bodies are, were able to rev up very quickly Right. when you know we lived in caves and we could have very easily been someone's dinner. Right, and if we didn't sweat, I mean, it would be so dangerous for us to be running away. Right, because then our bodies would overheat. Oh, and totally. That's, I mean, our, that's our body's way of cooling down. Right. So it, it's a very protective symptom in a lot of ways. It is. So the Although unpleasant. Yes, very unpleasant. The technical term for excessive sweating, for those of you who love technical terms, mm -hmm. is hyperhidrosis. Mm -hmm. And actually, it's often a symptom of social anxiety. More than 30% of social anxiety disorder sufferers experience it, uh, especially along with flushing. Oh my God. I, or I'm I, blushing. I used to blush so much. Mm. But sweating can be a symptom of any anxiety disorder. I mean, I used right. to get it with panic. Right. And and so did I. And And just so you know... There are other things that can cause sweating too, right? Yes. And so, you know, we always say that we're not doctors and you should always, always, always go to your doctor. Yes. We are not doctors. We are not. Yes. But. But. <laughs> that said, to make things more complicated, people with hyperhidrosis, they get very self-conscious about yes. the sweating because, you know, sometimes you can see sweat marks under yes. the armpits or yeah. maybe you, your face gets wet. And your then palms what do you do are sweaty. Right. you're self-conscious. So then you worry about it and yeah. you obsess about it. And then you sweat more. Exactly. It's a vicious cycle. 
uh, so this can be a real problem. This is a legitimate problem for a lot of anxiety sufferers. Um, we actually know a lot of anxiety sisters and brothers who suffer from this condition. Mm -hmm. uh, one anxiety brother we were talking with not that long ago, he actually brings a change of clothes to work every day. Well, Because yeah. he sweats that much. Yeah. And, and yeah. It, he really tries to... Um, to not worry about it, but you know, no, it's it's uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable. So especially what? when you're public speaking oh, or gosh. In, in public, do you yes. know? And then you're. Do you remember that movie? It was called Broadcast News. Yes. So you know, yes. remember the scene yes. where Albert Brooks? Yes. He's on TV for the first time, and he's just, he's just drenched. drenched in sweat. If you have not seen that movie, that is definitely a prescription from the Anxiety Sisters. See Broadcast News with Holly it's Hunter. It's a wonderful movie. It's a wonderful movie, and anxiety plays a big role. Mm -hmm. So what can you do about excessive sweating? Well, for starters, you can go to your dermatologist and he or she can prescribe a, a really strong antiperspirant for use either under your arms or also in topical creams to put, like if your face is sweating, you can mm -hmm. put it on your face. For hand sweat, you can put it on your hands. And for a lot of people, that's really, really effective. If that doesn't help, antidepressants, because it removes a lot of the anxiety or helps to reduce the anxiety, so therefore... Some of the sweating is reduced. Yeah, and sometimes doctors use other medications other than antidepressants if sweating really happens when you're public speaking. Right. They use beta blockers. Right. Calming um, medications. Yeah, medications that also help with a lot of those kind of symptoms, like the sweating and flushing. Correct. Or yes. trembling. You know what else you can use for sweating? What? Botox. Oh, interesting. Isn't I didn't it? Know I mean, that. I'm scared to death of needles, so there's no Botox in my yeah. future, but. You're uh, not a sweater. No, either. I'm not a sweater, although I'm always hot. Yes. But I'm not a sweater. Yeah, you're not a big sweater. It's the only thing I don't do. Yeah. Actually, now that we've talked about it, I'm sure I will <laughs> be doing it because I'm a very suggestible. So oh my God, I feel sweaty. You're <sighs> definitely not sweaty. <laughs> Another of our anxiety sisters has found biofeedback to be really helpful. Right. You can read more about that on our website. Let's just search biofeedback. We have a really good blog about mm -hmm. it. And uh, and another one that we know talks a lot about yoga, especially relaxing or restorative yes, yoga or yin yoga as being really helpful for reducing sweating. So great question. And we hope that helps. Our next question comes from BWWO411 on Instagram. What's the best way to deal with anticipatory anxiety? What the heck is anticipatory oh, anxiety, Maggie? Oh. So anticipatory anxiety, I had a major in this in college, basically, <laughs> and in life. But um, anticipatory anxiety is the anxiety that you feel when you're anticipating or when you're thinking about a stressful event that's coming up or something stressful oh, coming up. Oh, makes sense. Or if you're doing something... Say you know you are going to be flying oh later boy. in the day, and you're right. and you have a phobia of flying. Right, or right, right. You could have it for days before you fly. Well, right. you know that. Yes, from I, when you had a phobia of flying. I and, and even now that I don't have a phobia of flying, on days that I fly, I'll call you and say, "Oh, I'm a little heightened today," and you'll right. say, "Well, you're flying." Right, right. So it's it, a little anticipatory there. Right. It can be about anything that is that you believe is going to make you anxious. You know when I get it. When? When I'm going to the doctor. Yes. A, a, me too. Dentist? Me too. Yeah. Yeah. Any kind of doctor's appointment. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I any think place most there could of be us... A, any place there could be a needle. Yes. Yes. But anyway, so a lot of people who have panic attacks, we get anticipatory anxiety because we know how unpleasant it is going to be to have a panic attack. So you can also get anticipatory anxiety on just panic. You know, that I'm going to... When am I going to have my next panic attack? So or, it's panicking about panic. Yeah, it's panicking about panic. That could be part of 
what it is. That's called the anxiety loop. It is called the anxiety loop. But other people just get very catastrophic thinking when they're having a lot of anticipatory anxiety mm-hmm. about something. And I think anticipatory anxiety is really part of the generalized anxiety disorder diagnosis. Yes, and, and panic diagnosis. I mean, yeah. all of us who have anxiety pretty much get anticipatory anxiety because we know how crummy anxiety feels in yes. part. The best way to treat anticipatory anxiety, what do you do for yours? Do you have a, a specific thing you I, say you to know, yourself? You know me, I'm a talker. Yeah. So I do a lot of self-talk. Yes, I, that's I one of the a, best ways. Yeah, I do a lot of this too will pass. I'm going to be okay. I talk, I talk aloud to myself, sometimes even in the mirror. Right. Um, I also, you know, I breathe. Right. I'm a breather. Right. And that, so things like breathing, talking, having mantras that you know you can say to yourself. And sometimes I also do something that I learned to do with a medical social worker who treated a lot of people who were going into chemotherapy. Mm. And she would always say to them, okay, bring yourself back to where you are right this minute. Right? Be right here. Are you okay right now? Oh, I see. Do you feel okay right now? Are you safe right now? Are you in pain right now? She'd say, bring yourself back to right this minute. Because what happens with anticipatory anxiety of any type is we're in the future. Uh, Right. So this kind of brings you back to the here and now. Right. And so I will often say to myself, stay in the day. And if it's that day that I'm anxious about, I'll say, stay in the hour. Stay in these five minutes. Right. Another thing that she taught me to do was say can you make it through the next five minutes? Oh, that's really good. Yeah. I like these. Yeah. You didn't tell me these before. I don't know. You're holding out? I'm sorry. I just thought about it. But, you know, so that that if I know I'm going to be doing something painful, right, like be in the dentist chair, that really helps me. Like, can I make it through the next two minutes? I have um I have a friend who's an anxiety sister and she every time she has to go someplace that's unpleasant for her yeah. she has a lot of driving fears yeah. and every time she has to go somewhere on a highway or on a bridge or something where she knows she's going to yeah. be really scared she does a lot of yoga right beforehand right. and really says that just really relaxes her I, it probably keeps her in the present too right right it's you know. it's sort of that same idea as if you start if if yoga is a practice for you, mm-hmm. I don't know that you could just like run in and do yoga and help your. I can't, I can't just but. jump into a downward dog and suddenly everything's better. <laughs> but you know what? If it's a practice for you, it's like breathing is a practice for you. Yeah. So it is something incredibly healthy. It's like it is about getting your tools together. Right. Whatever right. helps keep your body calm. And take your spin kit with you. Take your spin kit with you and look up spin kits if you don't know what they are, but they're basically think, soothing. Yes, there are first aid and, kits for our for our mental health. Right. Take your spin kits. And the last thing we're gonna say is if you happen to take medication, and we're not doctors, we're not and we're not telling you to take medication, but sometimes, especially if you take benzos or that's like Ativan or Valium or Clonopin. Right. Sometimes Xanax. we say, um, with the permission of your doctor, sort of microdosing those a couple of days in advance mm-hmm. is very helpful because what you want to do is keep your body as calm as possible. Yeah, really microdosing. Like if you take, you know, like a half of a half yeah. every so often, it's, it's just to keep things steady. So you end up taking the same amount as you're supposed to, but, but just over in a longer sm- period. Over a longer period, just a small doses, but again, you have to check with your doctor before you do that. Yeah, we're not, we didn't go to medical school, just so you know, did not go to medical school. Okay, our next question, Marilyn, who follows us on Facebook, asked, 
does anxiety increase in perimenopause and menopause? And will it decrease after menopause? That's such a good question. Like we get so many hormone we, questions. It's it well hormones uh, and anxiety, you oof. know. Yeah, female sex hormones like estrogen and progesterone. Yeah, when they're unbalanced or if they're if your levels are very low, absolutely causes mm-hmm. anxiety. So it's not surprising that in times of a woman's life when her hormones are fluctuating, like puberty, mm-hmm. pregnancy postpartum, menopause, even if you get really severe PMS. Right. You know, a lot of people get monthly anxiety around their periods. Yeah. Yeah. So it makes sense that around those time of of hormone fluctuations, that would be when you're most susceptible to anxiety disorders. So yes, it is true that perimenopause and and menopause can bring on anxiety. Um, We've met so many anxiety sisters who had never experienced anxiety in their lives until they hit menopause. Mm -hmm. And then bam, yeah. Right? I mean, yes. so many women, they have these wild mood swings. And of course, there's a whole bunch of other fun symptoms we won't we won't tell you about. We'll let you find out for yourself. So to answer the question about will it stop after menopause, theoretically, if mm. your hormones are back in balance and your levels are right, then the anxiety should subside. But... But this isn't always the case, and I'm certainly an example of it not being the case. And but I should I should just tell people real quickly that yeah. I when I went through early menopause, I had terrible hormone-induced panic attacks. Yes. They were horrible. Yeah. And uh, I had to take medication, and I continued... Those panic attacks continued long after I stopped getting my period. Mm-hmm. I mean, long after they took blood tests and it showed that I was in full-fledged menopause. So not everybody gets relief. Uh, I had to actually... Um, use hormone replacement therapy, right? which is not for everyone. Right. Okay, that was, I did a lot of research and it's right for and me. it took you a long, long time to decide to do that. Yes, but it's right for me. Yeah. And now you'll have to pry my estrogen patch yes. from my cold, dead hands. I know. But it's not for everyone. Uh, and there's a, a lot of other remedies, natural remedies people swear by in terms of helping with hormonally induced anxiety. My, my recommendation is this. If you're experience a lot of anxiety that you suspect is hormone induced, mm-hmm. I would go to either a gynecologist who specializes in menopause. So not necessarily an OBGYN, but a GYN. Yes. Or an endocrinologist. Yes. Either of those professionals will really give you lots of options that you can then research and, and decide what's best for you. But don't sit and suffer because they're definitely, that, that type of anxiety can be controlled. Oh, Mags, you're going to answer this question from okay. This Life Rocks. One of our Instagrammers asked us to talk about selective mutism in kids. This is something Mags knows a lot about. Right. So selective mutism is basically something that's being researched and recognized a lot more. And that's like that's basically kids who in say they're at home, they can talk and comprehend and there's not a developmental issue in terms of cognition, but maybe they get to school and all of a sudden they can't talk. Oh, I see. You know, it happens a lot of times we see it in preschool, Mm. but we also see it extend into grade school. So the kids are verbal and vocal at home? At home or in in, in Or where they're comfortable. Yes, wherever they're comfortable, they're verbal and vocal. But when they get into uncomfortable situations... Such as school. Such as school, they might develop selective mutism or they might develop mutism. And sometimes these same kids can talk to their peers and they are too afraid to raise their hand and talk to the teacher. I see. Sometimes they can't talk to their peers, but often they can. So is this an anxiety disorder? It is an anxiety disorder because it is brought on by a sense of anxiety. And 
here's the thing. Can I? I'm I'm going to say the thing not to do. Okay. The selective mutism yes, first. We need to know. So the thing not to do is to think that this is a choice, mm. and or think that if you withhold things from the child, they will speak. Oh, I see. So no negative reinforcement. The negative reinforcement is really, really dangerous. And well, probably it's the same reason same. you wouldn't punish someone for having a panic attack. Exactly, okay. exactly. And and the reason I say this is because I posted one time about selective mutism and someone said, well, I ran a day camp and I wouldn't give ice cream to this kid until she asked for it. <gasps> oh, um, so that just creates more anxiety. And she's like, I cured her selective mutism. It's not something you can cure like that, right? You know, and, and, I imagine because it would generate more anxiety, exactly, which is the problem. Exactly. I mean, we know anxiety can't be cured like that, right? Right. Here's what what um, is important to do. There's a selective mutism association, so you can go on their website. Oh, great! And there's selective mutism camps. They're like they're week long or two week long camps um, in the summer, and they help train parents and kids oh. on how to deal with selective mutism because as the parent, you're really going to need to be trained. I would imagine teachers could really use training as well. Well, what happens is then the parent can go to the school with the therapist as well. The parent can go to the school and you do need to train the teacher how to do it. So they do things like the kid may come into the classroom a couple of days before school started. Oh, okay. And spend some time in the classroom and start to get more comfortable. They probably have to come in a few times. I see. And then several times a week, the teacher may have to work with the child for 10, 15 minutes on certain assignments. So it's basically doing whatever can be done to alleviate the anxiety. You're alleviating the anxiety and there's sort of, for each child, there's pretty specific treatment. Oh, okay. And so you really want to have a therapist who has worked with selective mutism before and or had some training on it. And you want to reach out to look at these camps and other ideas. Wow, the earlier funny. that you can get a hold of any kind of selective mutism issues, the better off you are. Wow. Really good information, Mags. Thank you. Another Instagrammer, Freeman's Best, asked a question that we get a lot, and that is, what causes the actual pain you feel in your chest during a panic attack? Oof, that pain is terrible. Well, can can we first acknowledge that chest pain is such a scary symptom because, of course, you think you're having a heart attack. Yes. And that makes the anxiety worse, and that makes the pain worse, and then you really know you're dying. It's it's horrendous. I think I read that about 10% of people who have anxiety attacks have the chest pain. Well, I certainly get the chest pain. Mm-hmm, and I have I to know. say, it's not its not like a little tightness. It right. is serious, bona fide, oh my God, chest pain. I yes. mean, like you, you, you are positive you're dying. It's, there's no question because it's that strong and that intense. In fact, you know all my ER stories. Mm-hmm. I've been to the ER many times because of chest pain. And I didn't believe them when they told me it wasn't a heart attack. Mm-hmm. I made them redo EKGs and blood work because I didn't believe them. That's how powerful that pain can be. So it's a really good question. Um, And I want to throw out a really interesting statistic that actually made me feel a little better. And that is that one out of every four people who show up at a hospital for chest pain, one out of four is experiencing anxiety. Right. So it's really much more common. I know that there was a place in Canada that did a study on this. And um, what they did was they had their ER physicians spend quite a bit of time 
going over the chest pain and anxiety with people. And it, and it really helped in terms of people coming back. I was going to say it must've decreased the number of repeat customers. It it did greatly. Because I have to say that the ER docs that treated me the first six times Mm -hmm. that I went to the ER really didn't help me understand what was going on. I mean, they, they would give me, you know, something for the anxiety and tell me to go see a psychiatrist, but really didn't give me any education. Right. And so I kept going back. Oh, oh. <laughs> we know people who have gone to the ER 50 and 60 and 70 times. Oh, yeah. We know people who sit in the ER waiting room. Right, just in case. Just in case, because they've gone back so many times that they don't want to check well, in I, again. I stopped going to my local hospital because I was embarrassed. So I would go to different, I would go out of my town to a different hospital because I, you know, right. just in case it still was anxiety and I wasn't actually dying, but you know, it's, it, it's, it's difficult thing. So Mags, what is actually causing the pain part of it? Well, you're often hyperventilating. I mean, in each person, it could be a tiny bit different. So let okay. me just say that, but you're often hyperventilating when you're having a panic attack. Yeah. Cause even, you're doing that shallow breathing. Yes. You don't even realize yes. it. Yes. And you don't, you don't realize it cause you're not going, <laughs> but right. you are breathing. Well, you know? I was going, <laughs> yeah, sometimes you're doing that and that, that lowers um, carbon dioxide in yeah, your blood. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that changes the oxygen and the carbon dioxide and Plus your heart rate is rising and your blood pressure is going up. Yes. And they actually think you're having some sort of muscle contraction from all of this, from the... So, like, your chest wall's tightening. Yeah, exactly. You're having a muscle contraction, which may account for the pain. So, between the muscle walls contracting around your heart and also that extra oxygen demand because of the heavy breathing... Right, exactly. So, this is what causes the actual pain. Right, right. And again, we always come back to this, but... You know, you've got to think that your body is running away from that saber-toothed tiger, and right. it might be on a long run, and right. it's on a fierce run. I mean, have you ever gone on a, you know, on a, well, for me, a long run is like a block. But <laughs> have you ever gone on a long run, and then suddenly you get this really sharp pain, yes. and you feel like you can't breathe? Yeah, I mean, it's not something I do often, but um, yeah. But, <laughs> but, but it's true that, you know, particularly because I'm not a runner, if I do have to run someplace, I'm yeah. like... <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it really... And, like, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack if I okay. run at all because, right. you know, the, the, it's just too much demand on my, my oxygen. But one of the things that, you know, is so scary about this pain, I think, is that often you are not physically exerting yourself. Right, you're exactly. Yeah, you're lying, you know, you're lying in your living room. Right, or, and, you're, or you're sort of in your car or you're in the supermarket and all movie of a sudden theater, and there's suddenly, a sharp pain. Yeah, a sharp yeah. pain in your chest and you're just like, wait a minute, what's causing this? Right, I'm sitting down. So it's, it's very, very scary. But of course, we always say, you know, we're anxiety sisters. You, you always got to check everything yeah. out. Yeah, oh, we've been to the cardiologists yes. many, yes. many times. And several. <laughs> several You know, so you always have to check everything out, but knowing that it is a very common symptom does help. That does help. So our next question comes from Jenny, who sent us an email. She says, I just started noticing that my 10-year-old daughter has been pulling out her eyebrows. Is this anxiety? Well, this is a tricky one, no pun intended, Yeah. because the behavior you're describing might be trichotillomania. Right. Or they call it trick, which is a body-focused repetitive behavior, kind of like nail biting or skin picking. Right. And it's usually a self-soothing behavior, and it can be unconscious. You might not even know. Often you don't know. That you're doing it, but it is for, it is for soothing. The most common age of onset for trick is in pre-adolescence to young adults. So 10 is about the right age. Right. And trick is, is much more common for girls than boys. Somewhere between, I think, 1% to 2% of the population suffers from trichotillomania. 
Um, and it's thought to be caused by anxiety or a stressful event or a trauma. But the research is really, it's not quite there. I mean, it's been inconclusive. It becomes very quickly, it becomes a habit. Right. It's like, so people do it when they're bored. People do it when they need to sue themselves. And their neural just... pathways get carved, and then there's a habit. Yeah, it's a, it's a very easy habit to pick up. Yeah. Um, and a hard habit to, to break. break. Right. So even though the DSM, what are we up to, five? The DSM-5 yeah. doesn't actually classify trick as an anxiety disorder. It, it is closely related with anxiety. Right. It's closely related, even though it may not officially be in that anymore. There aren't really clear treatment, like best practices that we can tell you, but we can tell you what does seem to help people. Okay. One is this idea of habit retraining, mm. which is basically because it becomes so unconscious. Mm. Habit retraining helps you, A, recognize maybe when you're more, most likely to do it, right? So that might be when you're doing schoolwork or you're bored or you're whatever. And then it helps you substitute some other things to do instead of doing that. So we have... We actually have a friend who runs a, an organization for skin picking. Yes, it's called the Picking Me Foundation. Her, her name's Lauren. It's a wonderful foundation. It is. And she has these kits and these tools that she uses and gives to people, things to do with their hands very unconsciously instead right. of picking. Instead of picking, to replace the picking behavior. And I think that they do a lot of that for trick. Absolutely. Um, they do cognitive behavioral therapy, and they do acceptance and commitment therapy, which is sort of accepting these urges and being okay not acting on them. Oh, I need that for my sweet tooth. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. And then there are some medications that are commonly used. They're not specifically... They're not designed for tricks, yeah, specifically. Or, or possibly even like FDA approved for tricks specifically, right. but they seem to be helpful. And those are often SSRIs or other kinds of Right, which would make sense. Medication, yeah, it makes sense. It's sort of that whole soothing of the of the body, the mind-body connection. Yeah. So definitely, if you notice it, get help soon. Yes, absolutely. We wish you luck. It's a hard one. That's a hard one. Yeah. yeah. So our next question comes from Julie from Facebook. And here's what she says. My stepson is dealing with addiction issues, but my husband is in total denial of the situation. I don't want to overstep my place as a stepmother, but the situation is making me so anxious. Family and friends keep texting me, telling me that they saw him high and asking what is going on with him. Every time the phone rings, I think it will be news of something terrible happening to him. It is starting to affect me at work, too, because I'm always so stressed out. What should I do? Hmm. All right, Mags. Here's your <laughs> advice column, All James. right, here's my advice column. So, you know, I realize that... it. It may be hard, like, what your position is in the family as the stepmother, but the thing is, an addiction is a whole family issue, and you are definitely part of the family because you're getting stressed out, and you clearly have a lot of love for this child. So you are in the middle of this issue whether or not you want to be. And so I'm going to give you a couple of ideas, and the first is get some support for yourself. That might be through therapy, through an addiction counselor. That might be going to a group like an Al-Anon, which is for families of addicts. Because 
you really need the support desperately. Right. Um, yeah. Regardless of what anyone else is going to be doing. Yeah, take care of your anxiety first. Yes. Before you can, you, you know, they always say, put the oxygen yeah. mask over your own nose and mouth before you try to help somebody else. And it's right. the same thing. You have to take care of your own anxiety first so that then you can help your family. Right. All of that is sort of part of your own self-care, getting that support and having some time for yourself where you can kind of focus on what you need and not what anyone else needs. And part of that is deciding what you can and can't control in this situation, which I know is very, very hard for me as a mother. It's very challenging. Mm. And do your own research on what would be helpful for him. You know, if there's a program or a place that would be helpful for him, just so you're armed with your own ideas and your own research. And, you know, maybe at some point you want to get some some of those family members that love texting you together, someone who your husband trusts, and really have a sit-down talk with your husband. I mean, you can't stop your husband's denial, but perhaps you can, with other people, really talk to him about it. So it's not just like you being the hysterical wife. Mm-hmm. And you know, talking to your stepson about it absolutely is really important because you have your own relationship with him, and you are allowed to say things to him. You feel things, you're allowed to say them. Yeah, and you're allowed to share your concern with him. Right. You know, addiction is one of the most tricky Mm. things to deal with because even when you get help, it may take several times in mm-hmm. a rehab program. Yeah, relapse is absolutely part of addiction. It is part of it. And, and it's not just like one program and it's all taken care of. It, right. it, it goes back and forth. Yeah, it's a messy one. It is a messy one. So that's why you really need the support of other people. And it's also okay to say to your family, like the people who are texting you all the time, you know, I appreciate your concern. It's a really painful situation and we're trying to move, you know, manage it. Right. So that... You're not getting that constant... Yeah, the constant trigger for your own anxiety. Yeah, it's the constant trigger. So, yes, but our main idea is to get support. Yeah, and particularly around the addiction issues. There's so many resources out there there and really wonderful resources that can help. Yes. So our last question may sound silly at first, but actually it's a really important topic. Okay. And it comes to us from Nafisa, who private messaged us on Facebook... Okay. And she asks, how can I get rid of stress and anxiety? Oh. The million dollar question. It is. It's it's a marvelous question because I think all of us sometimes think, oh, I wish I had no stress. I wish I had no anxiety. Or what am I doing wrong that I have so much stress and anxiety? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Stress and anxiety is is a fundamental part of life. Yeah, anxious is human. It is. It's and it is what moves us forward. We wake up and move ahead in our lives because we are anxious. Yeah, we because we have wake... some adrenaline flowing in exactly. our bodies and it gets us moving. Exactly. Otherwise we would all just lay there like lumps. And we don't put ourselves in dangerous situations, rightly so, because we're anxious about them. Right. Anxiety right? is protective. Like when you get to the edge of the Grand Canyon and you look down and you get that really awful heart racing heart feeling and you step back really fast, Right, that is your body's anxiety protecting you from tumbling off of a cliff. Right, exactly. But when we have chronic stress or really intense anxiety, it starts to affect us, obviously, oh, yeah. in, in really negative ways, both physically and psychologically, emotionally. And certainly when we have anxiety in situations that aren't particularly anxiety provoking, that's when 
things become much trickier. Right. And so one of the things we say is that as much as you can incorporate it into your lifestyle, ways to keep yourself sane and... Right. Um, ways to manage your anxiety so your, ma- your anxiety is not managing you. Exactly. You know, that's where you really want to draw the line. Having some anxiety in your day, that's pretty normal. But if your anxiety is taking over your life and not allowing you to do the things you want to do, well, that's where you can do some work. That's right. where we can intervene and there's techniques right. and things like that. And you were telling me this whole idea that there's some stressors we're all going to have, like people in our lives are going to get sick mm-hmm. and there's society stress- yeah. stressors and cultural stressors and things that are happening in the world yeah. are stressful. And then there's some that we really bring on ourselves right. that aren't a part of our life that we, we right. need. So we have this e-course, which is a lot like our live workshops in the sense that Um, It's an intimate group. We keep the class size small, a lot of one-on-one interaction. It's a five-week at-your-own-pace online course, so you don't have to leave your living room. You don't even have to wear clothes. And what we do in these five weeks is teach you how to manage the anxiety that you can control. Right, and the anxiety that is really overtaking you. Exactly. So we, we have more than 17 strategies and techniques, and we do uh, we teach you how to build a meditation practice. Mm-hmm. We have a live call. There's all kinds of stuff. So we have all kinds of ways to care for yourself if you're an anxiety sister. Yeah. So if that sounds interesting to you, then check out our website. Uh, click on eCourse. And you can learn more about it. You can find us on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on our website at www.anxietysisters.com. As always, if you have feedback, especially compliments, (laughs) questions, or an idea for a podcast, please email us. And if you are enjoying our podcast... We would so, 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 so appreciate you leaving a review on SoundCloud or iTunes so we can get the word out to more anxiety sisters. That's right. Thank you so much for joining us. And remember, anxiety Anxiety sisters sisters don't don't go go it alone. You're listening to The Spin Cycle, an Anxiety Sisters production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved.